welcome to the Simply Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Hassoun. In this podcast, I'll be looking at three key questions related to fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I will break these down into information that is easy to understand and actionable so that you can apply it to your life today. This podcast will give you all you need to improve your health and well-being once and for all. So sit back, listen, and most importantly, take action. Hello, you wonderful, wonderful people, and welcome back to another episode of the Simply Fit Podcast. Today, I have episode 34 for you, and we've got a few big topics to go through, as you would have seen by the look of the title. But before we do go into today's episode, if you are enjoying the Simply Fit Podcast, which many of you tell me that you do, which I really appreciate, and you happen to be listening on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please hit that subscribe button, which will ensure that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts in particular, please rate the show five stars, give us a review. And if you're not on Apple Podcasts or you have already given us a review, share the show with a friend, a family member, a colleague who you would think would take some value from listening to this episode or any of the past episodes you've listened to. You guys are the best for spreading the word of the Simply Fit Podcast. And the more you share it, the more impact we can make to create a healthier and happier world. So let's get into today's topics. And we're actually going to jump in straight at the deep end. So brace yourself. Here we go. First question, Elliot, can dieting lead to eating disorders? Before I answer this question, I want to clarify that I'm not a doctor. I'm not an eating disorder specialist. So what I say today is no replacement for medical advice. And if you are experiencing eating disorders or any challenges along those lines, reaching out to a specialist or a professional will be a very wise move. However, I have worked with many people over the past decade and due to having a real insight into people's behaviors around food, I have a fair amount of opinions on this and I hope by expressing my opinion today, it may help someone out. I will always tackle controversial questions if I feel I can deliver a level of information that might move someone in the right direction. You're probably wondering why I do this all the time, but I'm happy to tackle these if it provides value. So I'm going to start with perhaps a slightly different view on eating disorders than you might expect. And for me, in my experience, eating disorders don't stem from food-related challenges. They mostly stem from mental or psychological challenges. So I'm going to repeat that. For me, in my experience, eating disorders do not stem from food-related challenges. Most of the time, they stem from psychological challenges such as anxiety, depression, stress, etc. And used more as a coping mechanism, food in particular, as opposed to someone having issues with food per se. And if we dive deeper into eating disorders, they quite often fall into five categories if you actually do the research into this and usually it's genetic that's one factor biochemical psychological environmental and cultural and aside from genetics you could say that all four of those fall into the category of psychological and mental challenges and i really want to break this down further because i really want to hammer this point home let's look at environmental for instance right trauma emotional and physical abuse bullying family issues activities and sports that focus on being thin or looking a certain way All of this is likely to result in psychological challenges. Let's take a look at biochemical next. If someone is highly stressed, 
they're likely to produce a high amount of cortisol, constantly be in a sympathetic dominant state, which is quite likely going to lead to them being on edge all the time, being more anxious, lead to subsequent sleep issues and many other issues as well. Serotonin will probably take a hit, sex hormones will take a hit, and so will cognitive restoration as a byproduct of all these things alongside the lack of sleep. So once again, all of this is going to result in psychological challenges. Now let's look at cultural, societal standards of what you should look like, being bullied for being a certain shape or size that doesn't fit the cultural norm, celebrities, public figures being highlighted for looking and appearing in a certain way, and with a, you know, a human's natural negative bias and the fact that most of us are looking at filtered, airbrushed, superhuman looking people on magazines and social media, there's no doubt that this, in certain cases, is going to lead to psychological challenges. And the other category is, in fact, psychological. It makes sense that those who are prone to being like depressed rest uh, will you know go towards certain coping mechanisms specifically food which can lead to an influx of positive chemicals such as serotonin for example so you can see why i don't feel it really has anything to do with the food or dieting per se but more the emotional state of the individual in my experience i found that the reason why dieting might be seen as the issue is that it can exacerbate pre-existing conditions or tendencies however most people may not even see these tendencies until we shine a light on the tendency during a dieting phase. And I also want to take a moment to acknowledge that we are all individuals and this won't necessarily be the same for everyone. However, I would say that this is simply the case in the majority of the cases I've seen in my experience. For example, if we look at someone who has potentially a binge eating disorder, let's go with the individual who comes to me who's currently overweight, they want to drop 10 to 15 kilos, they have a super stressful work and family life, but they've become tired of being overweight, quite simply they get started on their journey. And on the application form, they we have a question on the application form, in fact, that says, does your emotional state impact the way you eat? And most up until this point will actually say that, yeah, it does impact my, um, you know, the way I eat my emotional state when I'm stressed, when I'm sad, when I'm anxious, but they don't really see it as a problem. And it might not even be disorderly yet, to be completely honest. It's just like the natural solution to make them feel better. And then for the first time in their adult lives, they're now on a nutrition regime. They can no longer go towards their regular coping mechanism and they have no other way of relieving this pressure, this stress, anxiety, certainly no positive practices because they've never needed to, right? They've never needed to find a healthier way of managing their stress because food has become the way of doing it and has become a very quick and effective strategy towards doing that. And just like a drug addict who stopped drugs entirely, they start ruminating about how much they now want this certain food if they find themselves in a stressful situation. They can't stop thinking about it. But the point is that it's not about the food here. It's about relieving the pain, handling the stress, distracting them from their current challenging reality. And it was never an issue before, as before they could even get into a place where they were ruminating or worrying about this type of stuff, the takeaway was already ordered. They were already halfway from the tub of ice cream potentially but now they have goals that conflict with their coping mechanism and let's say they manage to persist through this this one time or two times um, it might be hard but they might be able to do it with some willpower and determination and then they continue dieting and as a result of getting lower in body fat and generally lower on calories and their you know their expenditure is naturally higher as well 
What happens when we get leaner and food is lower and activity is higher? Biologically, we're built for survival. We've spoke about this before. Your body doesn't care about having abs. It cares about having enough fuel that it can survive and do the jobs that it's supposed to do. If we're exercising more, although it's good stress, it's still physiological stress. So if you combine your body's biological desire for survival, extra physiological stress, and then you throw in an extremely stressful situation with someone who hasn't learned how to handle emotionally challenging situations without food, there's no doubt that they think the diet caused the problem. However, what you can probably identify here and what I recognize the most is that the problem was already there in the first place. Another aspect is when someone says, well, I never had any binge eating tendencies, etc., in the past. But if you look deeper, they were usually going towards something else. Maybe it was alcohol, but that clearly conflicts with their goals or they've just decided at another time that they were going to give it up and go cold turkey. Maybe it was shopping, but now they don't have the, you know, the financial ability to do that and spend like they used to. And logically, it makes sense not to. And then with their body being in such a sensitive state due to the deficit the expenditure when they do accidentally potentially eat too much and there's a bump in that serotonin and you know they're all they're even more receptive to this hyper palatable food or even just normal food just because they're in such a sensitive state with their biological state and in reality it's not about the substance it's about taking away that pain distracting or making you feel good and food is likely to do that and in my eyes it's just the coping mechanism of choice it's like, you know, for others, it's alcohol, it's drugs, it's smoking, it's gambling, it's shopping, it's sex. It's all of those things that we lean towards in modern society. And interestingly enough, I've always thought about having an eating disorder versus any of these other ones. And I actually think it's the hardest to navigate because you can give up on alcohol, drugs, smoking, and all the other ones I mentioned entirely. Whereas you don't have that option with food. Like, yes, you can give up certain foods, but you can't give up foods altogether, which makes this even more of a challenge. So I I've not really looked into studies as to why we choose certain sources as our coping mechanisms, etc. But my hypothesis would probably be that it's usually nine times out of 10, based on what I've seen anyway, it's part of our conditioning as children for the most part. Like ask yourself right now, if you've had challenges with maybe binge eating or controlling yourself around food, maybe it's controlling your body weight, etc. If you had a rough day at school when you were younger, were you cheered up with food? Was food looked at as a way to make you feel better? For a lot of people, it was. And I believe, like, subconsciously, it stays with us for a long time. And, you know, we then use food as comfort in our adult lives. And if we add poor sleep on top of this, a dopamine rush, and the fact that hyperpalatable food is just so accessible these days... There's no wonder this becomes a challenge, right? And we've mainly looked at binge eating here specifically, but the same could be said when we look at anorexia, bulimia, etc. Like anorexia, quite obviously for me, falls in the cultural, environmental, and of course psychological category. This is where the issue stems from, but what's the easiest way to get thinner and skinnier? Calorie restriction, increased activity. So was it the calorie restriction, aka the diet and the exercise causing the anorexia, or was it just that the individual decided to exercise more and eat less and play out what was already projected on them from society and hadn't built enough self-esteem because they or they were low on confidence, and then it started going in their head, going in their head, and then the natural solution was, let me diet let me exercise more. Like for me, I'm guessing it's the latter. And the same goes for bulimia in my eyes too. Like if you look at some of the leading causes for bulimia, they are as follows. Stressful transitions or life changes, history of abuse or trauma, negative body image, 
poor self-esteem, professions or activities that focus on appearance slash performance, nothing particularly related to food, dieting, or exercise. This is all centered around emotional and psychological challenges. So as you can see, I'm quite strongly opinionated on this, and for a good reason in my eyes too. Like I think that quite often we're looking at the top layer not the deeper layer that's actually going to solve the challenge. So to summarize this and give you some actionable and simple advice, if you are currently suffering with eating challenges, my advice would be to go see a psychologist or a therapist, etc. But I will add actually that having a nutritionist or someone who can help you with your nutrition may be helpful as your view of food during this time where you're having these challenges might become quite warped and skewed. Therefore, learning about different foods, serving sizes, reintroducing certain foods that you may have demonized in the past will be super beneficial, but alongside dealing with the deeper issues at play. So not just about looking at the food and the nutrition aspect, but also digging deeper into the hard stuff, into the real challenging stuff. But ultimately, you're probably going to find the solution there because in my eyes and in my experience, it usually stems from a challenge that goes way beyond food. So that is my answer to one hell of a question. So let's make a transition onto something a little bit more lighthearted and one that I'm definitely going to enjoy answering. So next one, Elliot, how do I find an online coach? Oh, my immediate answer is look no further. If you're listening to this podcast, you've already found the ideal coaching service for you. <laughs> but no, I want to give you something a little bit more unbiased um, as it's really not easy. More and more people are becoming online coaches by the day and it's really as simple as changing your Instagram bio, unfortunately. <laughs> but most of you will know that as well as being a coach and with a team of coaches myself, I also use my own online health and fitness coach. And I'd say it took me a good three or four months before determining who I was actually going to work with. So I want to give you my top three things to look for, to be aware of when you're searching for an online coach, and then some quick fire tips at the end. And what's quite impressive as well is that not only are more and more people becoming online coaches, more and more people are becoming aware of coaching as well, which I think is incredible. Like I actually looked back on my Instagram and the first time I posted about online coaching was in October of 2014. You can scroll all the way down, but I probably wouldn't. Um, you should just take my word for it here. So October of 2014, which is coming up to seven years this, this, uh, this year, in fact. And at that time, it was impossible to explain the concepts of online coaching. I maybe had one or two clients at that time due to the fact that no one really knew what it was. Like the only reason I did it is because I was so well-versed in health and fitness and I was so passionate about it. So I would watch YouTube videos and, you know, it was kind of there for people who were really into their training or bodybuilders or athletes, right? They were the only people who had coaches. But then as the years have gone by and gone by, we found that, you know, more general population have gotten into which I think is incredible. I think it's really, really great. It's great for a business like mine as well. And it's great that we can help so many more people and it's such an accessible option. And that is the beauty of online coaching is that personal training, you know, it is quite expensive when you have three sessions a week or something along those lines, especially if you are living in central London or a capital city anywhere. Whereas online coaching is so much more accessible. And I think it actually puts the power in your hands as a as an individual who takes on a journey like that. And I know personally, I used to think, would I really still get the same results online that I would in person? And I found that my results have only been better since I've gone online, just due to the fact that with personal training, I found it really challenging to focus on much outside 
of the training session, right? You have 45 to 60 minutes with that person. Bear in mind, they're probably going to be late. And, you know, you might have to wrap up session a couple of minutes earlier. And between trying to just get to know how their day was and chat about all the training things, having the time to talk about nutrition, how to handle stress, sleep, and all that stuff was is a challenge. Whereas the beauty of online is that you can cover all those things. You can track all that data. You have regular check-ins where you can communicate with your uh, the person you're working with and give them the guidance that they need to make progress week on week. So that's just a little rundown of why I love online coaching and why we do what we do, because if we can get people some phenomenal results and we can work with people worldwide as well, which is a huge win for us. So let's dive into what you should be looking for. So numero uno, I think the best place to start is knowing what you're looking for like both from a service perspective, but also from the coach themselves. Like for example, some people will come to us and they'll ask like if we do one-to-one -one personal training sessions or Zoom sessions, and it's not something we offer as part of our service. And that's the difference between online personal training and online coaching. Like we personally believe and you know, we've been shown by our EHC members that you don't really need an in-person coach or a virtual session to have highly effective training sessions. Like so for that reason, we don't see the need to offer it. And we did a webinar recently. We do uh, training analysis videos. So if we find that that is more than enough to get an individual into a very, very effective position with their training. So not something that we think is worth doing. And if this is a deal breaker for you, then even before you get on a call, you might want to ask in an email, do you do in-person or virtual sessions? Get your answer. And if the, you know, if that's really important for you, continue to look elsewhere. And that's the place to start, right? You really need to know what you want. So if the person instead says, oh, okay, that's not that important. You know what I do need? I need clear guidance, I need accountability, I need bespoke plans, then our service is definitely going to be for you and it's going to be worth continuing the conversation. So I think that's a really important thing to so just go in knowing exactly what you want, like going into a store with a perfect idea of like the type of jeans you want, right? And if you say, okay, I want these thin, like slim cut jeans, I want them to be this certain blue color, you know, the store assistant can immediately tell you if they have them or not, or if they have something similar. And if not, you just shop elsewhere and it's as simple as that. And then next is what to expect from the coach themselves. Like coaches are not all made equal. We're all humans and we all have different personalities and, and your relationship with that coach can really, really impact your journey. So some may give you an abundance of information and some might give you just key points. And it's important to understand your needs, right? Like if you want a level of information that's extensive then you probably want to get to know like, okay, what are you providing to me? And, you know, get an idea of that. And if they say, oh, actually, I'm just going to give you bullet points. I'm just going to give you a simple meal plan. I'm not going to give you a comprehensive, like, you know, check-in response, etc. You need to know these things so that when you go in, you are ready to hit the ground running and your needs are met and you guys are on the same page. So the next one, which is super important, and these are in no particular order, by the way, is are they getting results with people like you? And in fact, are they getting results full stop? Like scan through their Instagram page, their website, etc., and look at the people they're working with. Like if you're a mother of two and you want to lose 15 kilos, but the coach you're you know looking at is mainly working with guys in their 20s, it might not work. It might, but it might not. If you're looking on Instagram, which again surprisingly seems to be the place to find your online coach, read their captions, their posts. Is their content relatable? Are they talking about struggles that you're specifically having, or 
are they think like all they talking about like grinding 24 7 and being super hardcore and just understand what approach is going to suit you if you've seen examples of people that have similar bodies lives and experiences to you then you know it's going to be a good fit probably the next aspect and this is huge is are they even getting results or are they just recycling the same three photos including the topless selfie of themselves no names mentioned <laughs> just because someone has three or four results doesn't make them a great coach right these could be years old and if they're averaging one to two transformations a year you might want to look at someone who's producing regular results right now and for example this might have not mattered before but this definitely matters now it's like let's take someone who has a handful of results from 2019. The world has changed dramatically since then. And I'd want to see someone who's got results with people during the lockdown, with just body weight and dumbbells, with parents who are homeschooling, right? Above all, the thing you're probably paying for, actually you, you definitely are paying for if you're going to be reaching out to a coach, is results. So you've got to make sure they have plenty of them. They might be a nice person, but you're not paying them to be nice to you. You're paying them to deliver a service, and if you follow through with it, you should get a result. And that's uh, super important to recognize. So on to the final point here, which is, do they walk the walk? I do not think you should hire someone based on their own physique. Like, absolutely not. But just because I can cut my own hair and it doesn't look terrible, doesn't mean I should be cutting anyone else's, right? I definitely feel like the individual should be in some form of shape, and I do truly believe this. Like, this doesn't have to be super super shredded they don't have to be the biggest person in the universe or the most toned person you've ever seen but i don't know if i could personally buy into someone who wasn't eating well and training hard themselves like when it comes to health and fitness there's literally no excuse not to if you are a coach and i really believe that with any coach you work with in fact like there has to be a certain level of respect and admiration for what they do within their domain whether it's business coaching health and fitness coaching life coaching whatever it is I personally want all the people that I'm working with to know that I'm working just as hard, if not harder than they are. And as a coach, you should be setting the standard for your team. Like competing and doing photo shoots has been super valuable for me. Like I can relate to my clients at all stages of their journey. I can draw on my experience. I can offer them empathy and actual practical advice because I've been there, I've been in the trenches. I know what it feels like. And I might not be competing or doing photo shoots anytime soon, but I'm continuously working towards bettering myself. And I think that's very, very important as well. And something that can be easily hidden behind within online coaching on the gym floor you would have seen your trainer most of the people i work with they'll see me on a zoom call initially they'll see our team on a zoom call but they, they don't really know what's going on from the chest down unless i um you know unless they've scanned through my instagram and seen it but it's very easy to hide behind it now so it's important to know that your coach is walking the walk as well so those are probably you know the top three or the first three in fact that came to my mind for sure and here are some quick fire tips which i think are just as important first is ask friends and families if they've had a coach a referral can be that like a very easy way to speed up the process you get someone's genuine opinion someone who's gone through it and can give you an insight that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise next is make sure you actually like that individual like a coaching relationship is a very very intimate one you want to enjoy your interactions with them right getting in shape like health and fitness especially if you're not you know extremely excited about it and you just feel like you want to get in shape because you want to be healthier it's not always enjoyable it sucks at times so you definitely want to have someone who makes the process a little bit more enjoyable for you 
Next is get on a call with them and ask every single question you could possibly have. There's no reason why you shouldn't. Next is make sure that you are ready to take action, right? The more time you have to think about it, the more that's going to lead to indecision. So I would only reach out to someone if you feel you are ready to get going. Next up is find out their experience level. Like this isn't super essential, but you'd be amazed at how many online coaches or coaches full stop have less than two years in the game. And I'm not saying more time necessarily makes you a better coach, but you know, if you stood the test of time, then hopefully you are someone who values improvement and has gotten better and better. Finally, absorb their content for a few weeks, like get a feel for them, listen to the podcasts that they're talking to, you know, listen to their Instagram videos, get to understand them first and see if you relate to them before you reach out. So this should cover you sufficiently. I'm sure I could have gone through more, but that should be enough when it comes to picking the right coach for you. All right, on to the final question, which is our training question today. Elegant. How do I bring up my weaker body parts? I want bigger arms, I want bigger glutes, etc. So first of all, I can definitely relate. I feel my arms have grown at a much slower rate than any of my muscle groups over the past years. Maybe my calves too, but we won't go there. <laughs> the immediate assumption is that we should just train these more regularly, right? Have multiple arm days or exercises, have multiple glute days and glute exercises. And as much as this is quite a logical thought pattern, I think we should take a step back and look at this from a broad perspective. So first things first, how does the rest of your body look? Like I hear a lot of guys will tell me like, I want a bigger chest. Yet you look at their body in general and you're like, well, actually your back could do a lot more work and so could your legs too. Like you've not really trained them much, have you? And I'm not telling anyone how their body should look, but from a structural and postural standpoint, being in proportion is going to be super important, right? What happens to most people who especially neglect their back and they train their chest all the time, which is 99% of the dudes who first start training, including myself, is that they end up with a rounded upper back and injuries to their shoulders. Like for people who you know train certain areas of their legs and neglect the others, they may end up with knee injuries, lower back injuries. So before we start working on any potential weak points, we want to make sure that we are well balanced. And the beautiful thing here, and it's something I'm very fortunate about, is I remember this moment. I just was like, one of my first gym sessions, I used to just hop from machine to machine to machine. And I was on a back machine. I don't think I particularly cared about the development of my back. But I remember the, the fitness instructor at the time coming over to me and he was telling me about all the people who neglected their back and it was good that I was training it. So fortunately, he put that in my head on one of my very first sessions all those 12 years ago, or whatever it was. So that's where I got a bit of a bonus. But I thought I'd share that caveat there. But most of us, especially if we're like kind of self-taught training, we'll tend to just focus on those areas that we want to bring up. So going to a physio and letting them look at, you know, the balance between your muscle groups wouldn't be a bad idea. Or just looking at your physique and observing yourself in general could be sufficient. You may see it. And let's look at it this way, right? If you've neglected training your legs, your back, you'll probably know by round already, right? Like I know that I haven't trained my calves enough, but Let's not go there once again. Right, the next aspect would be, is your weak body part really a weak body part? And are your strong body parts really strong body parts? And where I'm getting at with this is, if someone is going through a fat loss phase and they mention to me, like, I want to improve this, this is a weak body part. Like my advice is for us to analyze their physique once they've completed this phase. 
And this is because like, A, because we can improve things a lot more during our muscle gaining phase for obvious reasons, but also because body fat is very deceptive. So my chest for me is certainly my strongest body part. It's like probably one of the easiest I have to grow. In fact, it's probably the only one that needs very little stimulus in order to maintain and grow. However, in my early days of training, I used to hold a fair amount of my body fat in my chest and it actually made my chest look bigger in a, in a pretty good way, actually. But in reality, it wasn't actually my strong suit yet. It was only once I cut down for the first time and I got really lean and I was like, oh, wait, you know, my chest isn't quite as big as I thought it was before. It was the fat that was providing a lot of size there. And an unfortunate aspect of this, when ladies go through a fat loss phase two, they will come to me and they will say, I feel like my bum isn't as big as it was before. And the harsh reality, and it's always heartbreaking for me to say this, is that quite often it wasn't muscle. It was just a lot of well-placed body fat on top of that muscle. And it does sound harsh, but unfortunately, for the most part, it's true. I had the same experience. So let's, get, let's put that, set that to the side. But once you get lean first, it can be a very, very good way of genuinely identifying where your weak parts are. And you'll have a lot more clarity, like when you strip away that body fat and as mentioned as well, like it's also going to be a lot more favorable to work on the certain body parts when you're in a muscle gaining phase, which makes sense to go into after you've dropped some body fat. And actually this goes for abs too. And this is a biggie that I want to mention. Like for most people, it's not more ab exercises you need. It's usually less body fat. I'd say that's the case for actually 98% of people too. And I'm not exaggerating either. So once you strip things back, you'll see what was actually a strong body part and what potentially was well-placed body fat and what's actually a weak body parts and then you can make a little bit more of an informed decision and the final aspect i want to go through here is that actually it might not even be a weak area it might just be that you're not training it well enough and to use this chest example for guys once again usually it's not their chests that are the weak point it can be due to the shoulders being so rounded over like they're barely able to contract their pecs they're not retracting their shoulder blades again and once again they can't contract effectively like if i put my hand on someone's chest and they're pressing and it's still soft especially when they come up to that peak contraction point you're not contracting it hard enough, right? Next aspect, they're not sticking to a training program. They're chasing the pump versus actually challenging the muscle group with progressive overload. So their chest doesn't suck, the way they train sucks. And sorry guys, I am full of harsh truths today, but I've been through this so I can definitely relate. And if you just go to automatically add more sets of chest press, if you don't fix the above, not a lot is going to happen. It's really not going to help that much. So before you make any changes to your training program or ask your coach to add more exercises, specifically those ab exercises, look into these first. So to summarize this, check that you're in proportion to begin with. Get lean to get more clarity on your physique. Make sure you're training effectively and properly. If you've gotten these out of the way and you still find that an area is quite stubborn, then it might be worth adding a little bit more volume. Like I would usually start by adding a couple more sets, maybe a couple more exercises. Adding an entire arm or glute day is not my first point of call. When it comes to muscle building, we can only train as hard as we can recover. Our bodies can only handle a certain amount of volume at any period of time. And you know, if we can only technically recover from three to four chest exercises within a 24, 48 hour period, then what's the point in doing five to seven? It's a waste of your time, your energy, and can be put towards something else. It's what we would call in the industry 
treat as junk volume, right? There's no point in doing it for just the sake of doing it. Yes, you may feel super pumped, but just like sweating more, it doesn't equal a more effective workout. A bigger pump does not equal more muscle gain either. So try this for a three to six month period and see how you get on. And if you're not seeing the changes you'd like to, then perhaps you choose to add more volume or even perhaps you start with that muscle group. This is quite a good idea as well. Like, although it might not be conventional to do your arms at the start of the workout, there's going to be a big difference in your level of energy and your focus if you begin the workout with bicep curls versus doing them at the very end of your workout after like five taxing exercises, right? It all comes down to your priorities. The final aspect of this, which I mentioned earlier, is that if you want to gain muscle in any capacity, you'll have the best chance of doing this in a calorie surplus. I've discussed this enough in the past, so I won't go into detail, but trying to focus on your weak parts during a fat loss phase won't really give you the best return on your investment. So that is my answer to that question. But most importantly, enjoy the challenge of bringing up that muscle group and your muscle groups in general. Your body is like a sculpture that you get to work on over your lifetime. You can create whatever you like, but don't get caught up in rushing the process. Enjoy it. Enjoy creating the artwork that is your body. So that is today's episode. As always, I hope that you were able to take something actionable away from it and you were able to apply it to your own health and fitness journey. So that's everything from me today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourselves and we'll speak soon. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.